From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, everyone, and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and your host for today's show on women and politics. You know, with Hillary's nomination, we are electrified, we are activated, we are also in debate, pondering all kinds of things about what this means uh, for the country, for the election, for our futures. But there's also some serious questions that we're going to discuss here today. Um, What does it mean for women in business to have a serious woman candidate for the highest office in the land? How will it impact the presence of women in politics at all levels of government? And how can we encourage young girls and women to get involved and stay involved? We're going to explore these questions in our first half hour with Kylie Lane Parker. She's a producer and director of the documentary Raising Ms. President, and she's going to talk with us about her eye-opening and inspiring film. And then in our second half hour, we're going to dive into the gender issues um, that are being addressed and revealed in the various political campaigns with Kelly Dittmar. She's an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden, and a scholar at the Nonpartisan Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. There's a lot to talk about today, and we'd love to have you join in on the conversation. So give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell us, what do you think the impact on women in politics will be as a result of this presidential campaign? And with that in mind, and this extraordinary moment where Hillary accepted the nomination, and we look around and we say, what does that mean for our girls. I'd like to bring on Kylie Lane Parker. She's a storyteller, a producer, writer, director, and marketing consultant who produced, wrote, and directed the timely and powerful film Raising Ms. President. It's a nonpartisan documentary about how we're going to raise the next generation of female political leaders. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us here on Women at Work. Thank you, Laura, for having me. I'm so excited. So am I. I'm particularly excited that this film is out there. The timing couldn't be more perfect. Um, But films don't get made overnight. So what made you start making this? When did you start it? And what was your motivation? You know, you're so right on that. And it's so unbelievable that I started making this in 2012. Really? Yes. Yeah. So it was well, and I would say that it actually happened in 2008 that I was quite astonished that Hillary did not win her party's nomination during that election, presidential election cycle. And I started to wonder, you know, do women want to run for office? You know, why don't we have more women in office? In office? I think the media really caught on to that. And by that time we hit 2010, there was a surge of Republican women who ran for office, I think the most in our nation's history, but it was still a small amount compared to Democratic women. And there was a lot of fodder um, given to the likes of Sarah Palin that had come on the national front. So I started to wonder, well, this is really interesting. Is there going to be, are there going to be more women who actually run for office? Because we saw Hillary in 2008. We've seen Sarah Palin, um, you know, come up and actually become a, I think a political correspondent, kind of this national national figure um, in 2008, 2009, and then 2010, we had a lot of women run for office, but then it still wasn't enough, and actually women lost seats across the board. And so I said, huh, this is a really interesting topic. I'm hearing we don't have enough women in office, but I'm not hearing the why. And so that's really what sparked the documentary is that I wanted to discover why it was that women were not running for office in hopes that we could get more women to run in the future. So as you started making the film, one of the things I noticed about it was um, how disciplined it was in its nonpartisan approach. Was that hard to do, part of the design? How did you make it happen? Yes. So I, full disclosure, I am an independent, and it is important to me and a journalist. And so those two things combined make it extremely important for me to present an argument um, and always represent as many sides as possible. Because as a filmmaker and as a journalist, I don't feel that it is my right or duty to tell people who to vote for. I am just making the case, trying to make the case in the documentary 
that because of these reasons, this is why women don't run. And because of these statistics and these facts, we should get more women to run in the future. Because overall, all the studies suggest that when more women are at the decision-making table, there are better outcomes for everyone involved. We and talk so, about this yeah. all the time. Um, across the business community, um, certainly here on Women at Work, that um, in order to solve the intractable problems that the world faces, we need the most innovative and competent talent pool. And you're not going to get the most competent talent pool if you don't include multiple voices and you don't bring everybody into it. So it's clearly an imperative for us on multiple levels, and in particular in public service. Um, What did you, what was the thing that surprised you the most, though, as you were doing the film? What did you learn from it? Interesting. So when I started the film, I was actually exploring feminism as well because because of statements that Sarah Palin had actually made about being a feminist. And I thought, oh, wow, so is the Republican Party going to own and capture the word feminist? And then it's going to become, you know, it's not going to have the negative connotation. That's kind of what I was investigating as well as why women don't run for office and are we going to have more women. But as I was doing my research and talking to people, it didn't really seem like that was taking hold. And interestingly enough, when I was out in California and I was interviewing with this amazing group that's featured in the film Ignite that has been training young women um, for political leadership, I was sitting in this room with all of these brilliant young women. They were all the heads of their clubs. They were vice president. They were their president. And I went around the room and I asked them, okay, so will you run for office when you're older? And almost every single one of those young women, and these are high school women, were saying no. And they were stating the exact same reasons why the women that were in their 30s, 40s that I was interviewing were saying, which was, I don't believe that I could win. I just want to focus on family. <clears throat> I don't believe that I could I could do something that high, but I'll be a doctor or I'll be a lawyer. You know, so, so here we've made all of these inroads in the in business sectors, you know, that were predominantly ruled by men, but yet politics is still this last bastion of where women don't see themselves. And a lot of that has to do with putting yourself out in front is what we discovered. So it's the making yourself public property that's really steering people away from it? Well, that's just one of the reasons, really. And, And part of that is just ingrained in our society. You know, women are are trained and we're supposed to be likable. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, and I I love the saying Sheryl Sandberg uses, you know, men are the boss and women are bossy. You know, if if they're (laughs) considered to be aggressive, you know, or leaders, you know, showing those leadership capabilities. And so it's the way that we label people with similar qualifications. And so women get labeled negatively. Um, You know, we don't, we don't value, and, and I hear this all the time, especially, you know, now that Hillary has won her party's nomination, is that, you know, likability and advancement don't go, isn't a positive factor for women, but it's right. positive for men. And that's just so unfortunate. So as you were telling the story, and I was really quite taken with the film, I thought it did an excellent job of, um, in a nonpart, I mean, the nonpartisan approach and hearing from um Republican women leaders who have been in politics for 20 and 30 years um, really helped ground it in a discussion of what the leaky pipeline issues are that we talk about all the time in business, but as they apply directly to politics. When you were talking to some of these women who um, had, they've spent their whole career in politics, they were really unusual. Were there things about them that you feel were part of the era in which they emerged, or are there things that we all can learn from them now? I think both, actually. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, I work so hard on making it nonpartisan, and I think that that's why I've gotten I've gotten lots of accolades from both groups. I've gotten criticism criticism from both groups as well, which, <laughs> which to me that's... as a journalist says, okay, I've done something right. Um, you know, but. But some of the so some of the thought leaders, you know, I interviewed Phyllis Schlafly, um, for instance, and a lot of people know her as, you know, kind of the crusader against the Equal Rights Amendment. And that was a really fascinating interview for me because she, you know, here we are 40, 50 years later, and she was still so on message. And I couldn't get her, you know, to emote 
about anything that was happening in the day. And, and at the time that I interviewed her, Michelle Bachman was running for um, her party's nomination for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And she thought the world of Michelle Bachman, um, you know, but she never strayed from from her message um, and also the and which is to me the anti-feminist message, which I found so interesting. So in other words, she's not a feminist. She won't own the word feminism, yet she's an incredibly successful woman in politics. Right. Well, I would I would say in terms of um, a, a vocal leader of a movement, mm-hmm. you know, she ran for office, I think, twice and didn't win. So, you know, if you look at it in terms of a policymaker, um, she is definitely an influencer. But in terms of actually making no, policy and, and being, yeah. Um, but she is definitely a leader in that movement. And, Which is why and I think of her as successful in those efforts, because she impacted people's consciousness. Oh, yes. And impacted the public discourse. Exactly. Yeah. And she's still going strong. I mean, that's what So she was. She was quite remarkable um, to sit down with. And then, you know, I, I had the, the great pleasure. Again, we focus on really I kind of looked at Ignite and Running Start. So Ignite was in California. And then I came over to Washington, D.C., where Running Start is another young women's organization, uh, organization that's dedicated to training young women for political office and leadership. And they do a week-long training camp in the summer for high school students, and they pick females, one female. They Everyone has to apply from all 50 states, and so you have all 50 states represented. And I think when we interviewed them, they had 30 spots. There were 30,000 applicants. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, their and their program has just ballooned and and grown. And the same with Ignite. It was really amazing. And that's where I I was able to interview um, uh, Senator Murkowski um, and a bunch of different, and John Yarmouth, who's from Kentucky, Representative John, Mm -hmm. John Yarmouth. And so, you know, it was really interesting because I think that definitely for on the politician side, they're very, very current in their times, um, you know, so kind of going back to your question, I think that they're very representative of the times, and it's interesting in that kind of a space, in that educational space, it's very different than what we see in the media. Absolutely. The insightful storyteller, producer, writer, and director um, who we're talking with today is Kylie Lane Parker, um, who gave us this extraordinary film, Raising Ms. President, a nonpartisan documentary about raising the next generation of female political leaders and the promising young women who are rowing in that direction and being supported and all the challenges that they face. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So I want to come back to this interesting prompt um, that you went in a way looking for feminism as you were starting this process. And it's a word that I think every month that goes by, it seems more and more embraced and it's becoming more normalized as, I, as we're in this third wave of feminism. Yet it's also a highly polarizing term. Um, unless I wasn't paying careful enough attention, it, it wasn't central to the film and the way you told the story. Why did you make that decision? Not at all. Well, because I, just like you said, it's a deeply complicated word. And so whatever, and, and lots of people have different definitions of it. And, you know, in that first year of filming, I came back to the editing studio and there were probably a hundred different ways that people were defining what feminism meant to them. And how do you make a film out of that? I mean, it's <laughs> just about that. It would be very interesting. And people have done that. And so I chose not to focus on that because I think that I couldn't have done the word or, or people's feelings about it justice. Um, because it is such a complicated issue. And, you know, the film is an hour long, and I made it an hour long so that it would be used as an educational tool and easily digestible. And so you can have a program that is based around the film, you know, an hour long Mm -hmm. or an hour and a half program, um, as well as for television, and so which is where it sits right now. So as disciplined as you were in making it nonpartisan, you also address the the issues without using what we sometimes call the F word. Um, Did it come up in conversation, and was it more used by the young women or the older women, or was it as carefully absent from conversation as other words that we say with an initial? 
I think I think the latter. Um, you know, and well, I I'm trying to think back. You know, that's a really interesting. I think originally, and probably throughout the entire time of filming, it was only addressed if I addressed it, if I asked the question. Um, I don't think, especially with the young women, it's not as though they were coming out and saying, I'm a feminist, so I believe this. Um, you know, the person that probably spoke about feminism, mostly unprompted, was Phyllis. Um, so, so yeah, I, I really, I don't think that it was something that was in everyday conversation in terms of this is who I am and this is why I'm doing this, if that makes sense. Makes absolute sense. One of the um, things that I also noticed was that, you know, the the mature women, the women who have had careers in politics and who are trying to encourage the younger women, um, speak quite artfully about, and the men as well, about why we need more women in politics. And um, one of the things that is happening, I know it's at my own kitchen table, and it's happening in generational pairings around the country, is that women of my generation um, are placing a different importance on seeing a woman president. And I know in even my discussions with my daughter, who is a self-avowed and proud young feminist, um, she's like, the question is, is that the right woman? And not... um, I'm just going to vote for somebody because she's a woman. How much of this was part of the discussion that you saw as you were doing the research for the film? There's definitely a discussion about, you know, don't voting for someone just because they are a woman. And I would say across the board that we believe, I mean, Raising Miss President kind of talks about it, Mm -hmm. um, as well as most of the people that we interview, that you should not vote for someone just because of their gender. But... In the 21st century, unlike, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's okay that if you're a woman and you're running for office to talk about being a woman. Mm -hmm. And so that's the new aspect is that you should talk about your woman, why you're a woman. And, you know, it's it's obvious, obvious, you know, (laughs) it's wonderfully historic in that regard. But there are also things that women bring to the table, just like there are other things that men bring to the table you know, that are, that are, as of right now, because we are still in a gender-rolled environment, you know, that we have differences that we bring to the table in terms of how we interact with people, as well as what is what are some of the issues that we focus on, um, you know, compared to our male counterparts. Right. There was a wonderful conversation in the film about the difference of the discussion of um, preparing for war and readiness mm-hmm. for war and the difference of discussing discussing that men and women bring different points of view to the discussion, both of which are necessary. The difference yeah. between, you know, to, to separate it cleanly, you know, do we have the ammunition we need? Do we have the weaponry we need? Are the troops positioned? But also, are the troops ready? Are their families ready? Are the support systems ready? The impact at home, the impact abroad. And so um, it was a great example of where multiple voices at the table will make a better decision. Right. But in order to get more those voices at the table, um, as you were talking about in the beginning and you saw and you did a really um, is a really effective montage in the beginning of the film about these really smart, articulate young women saying that they don't want to run for office. Where does political ambition begin? How can we help more women find it and help hold on to it? So that is a million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and again, the the answer is, it's not so simple, yet, you know, we kind of, we break it down in simplistic terms, and we really focus on the home, the school, and society. So ambition for anything really starts at home. You know, how are, how are your parents allowing you to show your leadership skills, and how are those encouraged? You know, or are they discouraged? You know, there were lots of stories for, I mean, you know, there's only a certain segment of interviews that get into a documentary film. Right. You know, we have about a hundred more that are sitting on a hard drive somewhere. Um, wonderful uh, sound bites and stories of people talking about their own experiences of being told that they couldn't do that because they're a woman, or women can't be president, or uh, no, you're 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 too bossy. You know that those and those messages that we're giving our children, you know, they're they become ingrained. And labeling is a huge factor. 
um, you know, not just not just with political leadership, but any kind of leadership or anything that you know, if you're going through school and and you have some kind of a label that's coming on board, um, you know, you start to believe that that's what you are mm-hmm. or that you can't do something. And so it really starts at home. And then in our schools, you know, we're not teaching leadership. We're also not teaching politics or in a way that, that we used to. Um, and I think that that's really important, you know, in terms of how the system works and, and really understanding um, what leadership means. I mean, there, there are people and organizations going to great lengths to impact schools and impact teachers um, as well as their business organizations, just kind of seeing who holds their hand up first. And usually it's men or boys. And mm-hmm. so there are active measures to start calling on girls first. And, you know, and I've had people email me and say, you know, I now just call, I call on a girl first just to start out the meeting. Right. Um, or a woman first, you know, and also in, you know, in these youth organizations too, just because it's been ingrained that, you know, again, as, as women and as young girls, uh, we don't usually speak up. I mean, there's so much research that also says that women run for office, they don't usually promote themselves. They have to be asked and someone has to promote them and, and that is going to continue, I think, for a while, you know, and well, that is just basic, yeah, basics of, of what has been occurring in our society for decades. Right. And it also, there are those key points, which you noted in the film that, you know, women tend to wait until they feel like they meet 100% of the qualifications to do something. Men tend to say, you know what, I got 60% of it, I'll figure out the rest. And how many people actually have experience governing? So, you know, that by default would rule a lot of women out from stepping up to the plate. Um, One of the best parts of the film, I thought, was the way you were talking about the barrier to entry to get involved in politics is actually a lot lower than people think. How did you stumble upon that in your research? Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you look at who has been running for office since the founding of our nation, I mean, it's teachers, farmers, you know, lawyers, you know, it's a whole mix. That's the point of a democracy is that you have a whole mix of people, um, people in the media. And, and you still have that representation in Congress today. And so, you know, really what you have to do is get a certain amount of signatures and raise a certain amount of money, and you start locally. You know, we're not just talking about the president of the United States. We're talk, you know, there are so many local races where women are not represented as well, and that's usually, you know, and that's usually the pipeline. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a congressperson and, of course, want to be president of the United States, understanding how it works and how the system works is very important. So starting off in city council, starting off, you know, at your school and running for office at your school, you know, it's very, very simple. Um, you know, you you put your name in the hat and you make some signs and you run for office. And I thought you, so um, yeah. it was one of the parts that I really appreciated because that point was made that it can be a part-time job, you can do it at 25, and it is a way to learn how government works and to begin to go into public service and right. to both um, build the skills, um, build the credibility, um, and understand what it means to serve and start to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and it is, you know, it, it's a really interesting environment and, and it does take skill and that's why people, st- and it is about, it, there is a power structure and then there is a hierarchy. And so, you know, once you get to the state or the congressional level, you start to be put on committees based on seniority. So that's why people stay in it. And the longer you stay, the more power you have. But I love the fact that people you know, every day throw their hat in the ring and they want to, they want to step up and run. I mean, you know, you've got some, the youngest female state representative in Virginia, you know, I think she's 18. That's incredible. Um, Yeah. You know, and, and her father um, had served before. So it's, it's in her family. And so you just kind of see that. And a lot, a lot of the women, if you ask a lot of the women who are in Congress today, um, they already they started in an elective office before, or their families have been involved in politics, and so it is. You know, it goes back to that family structure, and and how are you talking about politics and leadership 
with your kids. And public service. And public service. Yes, exactly. Because it's not as if it, it necessarily has to be a family business, um, despite what we see <laughs> you know, in right. the bigger elections. It really is that you have role models and you can see where a family shapes its values around public service and structures its life to enable it. Yes, exactly. And so that also um, women can look at how to build a family um, while running for office and while serving, even though it's um, probably harder than it is in many corporations. Yes. And that, you know, that is one of the biggest things, I think, when I was interviewing, you know, because you have you have these self reasons, you know, oh, I don't believe in my qualifications to lead. Oh, I don't have political ambition. But then you do have the biological reason of I want to have kids. And how do I fit that in? And so as more women are entering these leadership positions um, in politics and business and speaking out, um, you know, there's a great TED Talk with Sheryl Sandberg, and she mm-hmm. talks about the difficulties of, of raising your children or, or child, you know, balancing children, but how important that balance is. You know, that is that is a, a big part of this in figuring out how to fold the children to make it to make sure that women are supported not only on their you know, with having a family, but also in their ambition, um, and that it shouldn't be discounted, um, you know, because that is one of the biggest reasons why women drop out of the workforce. Absolutely. Altogether. So we're running out of time, but before we do, how can people see your film? Well, they can go to com, and they can order a DVD. You can have a home DVD, but we do a lot of university and community screenings, and so you can go to the tab that says license the film um, and or screen the film and shoot me an email and we can get you a copy of the film. Um, also, you can go to aptonline.org. Um, American Public Television uh, picked up Raising This President in March and they're distributing it through uh, PBS stations around the country and on the World Channel. And so if you go to aptonline.org, you can put in your zip code and find out if your station is airing it and when. That is fantastic. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us here on Women at Work. That was Kylie Lane Parker, uh, who gave us Raising Ms. President. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to today's show on women in politics. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm excited to continue our conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in public service. In our first half hour, we heard from Kylie Lane Parker, producer, writer, director of the thoughtful and nonpartisan Raising Miss President, and helping us to continue exploring these complex issues, including the dynamics affecting the actual election of Ms. President, is Kelly Dittmar, who's an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden, and a scholar at the nonpartisan and nonprofit Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. If you have questions for Kelly or you'd like to join in the conversation, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And before I bring Kelly on, I want to play a clip from the news last week. It may sound familiar, but you'll see where it comes into play in just a minute. Standing here as my mother's daughter and my daughter's mother. I'm so happy this day has come. I'm happy for grandmothers and little girls and everyone in between. I'm happy for boys and men because when any barrier falls in America, it clears the way for everyone. I don't have to tell you who that was last week, um, but I would like to say our guest today is Kelly Dittmar. Kelly, welcome to Women at Work. Hi, thanks for having me. So throughout the convention, and in particular, I think it was emphasized in that clip, um, I noticed what seemed like a distinct shift in campaign strategy, that compared to the last campaign, where Hillary was presented as a candidate who happened to be female, Her femaleness was being clearly presented, not only as an important first, something to celebrate, but a unique asset 
that yeah. as, as a mother, as a grandmother, that she would protect us like the great mama bear. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. what's behind this shift? Because this wasn't just my imagination that this was purposeful. Yeah, no, definitely purposeful. And I think, you know, you raised an important point that in 2008, um, Hillary Clinton continually said, you know, I'm not running as a woman. I'm running to as the most qualified candidate for president. And that was very much pushed by her strategists, among whom was uh, Mark Penn, who said in a memo, the country doesn't want a first mama president. They're ready for a first father president that's a woman. In other words, telling her, you have to prove you're masculine enough to be president. Um, so let's sort of set aside and sort of overcome your gender in order to win the office. This time around, what you're seeing is sort of, I think, a reflection on the fact that that didn't really work. It wasn't authentic for her, right? For her, being authentic means also being a woman and embracing what that brings to the office. And I also think that this time around, she and clearly her campaign team see the benefits of her gender. And so she's talked about this time saying gender is not the reason I'm asking you to vote for me, but it is among the credentials that I bring to the office. And I think that's important for us all to sort of recognize a woman candidate really being allowed to and saying publicly that, yeah, being a woman does bring something distinct. And for her, it brings the life experience of sort of navigating the world as a woman, which still is different than it is for men. And so she brings that perspective to the table. Um, and I think it's something she's talked about in a bit more of a nuanced and complex way this time than definitely uh, last time around. It also seemed to me like it was leveraging something that the business community has been tuning into, um, that in research about negotiation, um, men will outperform women negotiating with men. Men will outperform women negotiating with women, unless those women are advocating on behalf of other people, and then they out-negotiate everybody else. Yeah. And it seemed like that's exactly where she was positioning herself. That's a good point. And it's also consistent with what we see more generally in even getting women to run for office. Often we have to make the case to women that it's not about doing this for yourself, right? It's about doing this for the policy issues and the people that you care most about. And that even in encouraging women to run for office, you see that sort of same motivation, that women are often other-focused in a way um, that is not necessarily true for men. We did a survey through the Center for American Women in Politics of state legislators and asked sort of what motivated you to run for office. And the top reason among women was I was motivated by a policy issue, something I care deeply about. When we asked uh, men what was the what motivated you most to run, their answer was it's because I always wanted to be in elected office. <laughs> and so the sort of shorthand for that, right, is women run for office to do something, men run for office to be somebody. But I think it aligns with with what you're finding in in sort of the business world as well. And so part of this also brings up the difference between. Um, how we, how women campaign and how they lead, um, how they, what drives them to campaign, how they talk about campaigning and how campaigns are structured, which are a very different thing than how women will serve in public office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do women get prepared for both of those things at the same time? <laughs> well, I think Hillary Clinton has, has in some ways showed this very starkly because she talks about, you know, uh, uh, campaigning in prose and what is it? I forget the <laughs> phrase that she, she uses all the time, right? But she says, you know, campaigning is just not my strength. Um, and so I, I think that when we talk to women all the time, the campaigning piece of it, right, is often where you see the sort of biggest and largest hurdles for women. And once they get in office, not that there aren't still hurdles, um, and there are hurdles to advancement and things like that, and the institutions are still dominated by men, but it's that sort of overcoming stereotypical expectations of women and, and sort of what we expect on the campaign trail to see, um, qualifications, bars that are often set higher for women, so is she really qualified enough and things like that. Simple, sort of annoying things like why do they keep focusing on my appearance? Um, <laughs> right. And and then also put real structural problems. So um, the biggest structural sort of hurdles in campaigning that we've often seen is that 
first parties, which are very influential in, in getting women on a ballot, getting men and women on the ballot, um, have often acted as gatekeepers to women. Mm-hmm. And that's because parties have often been led by men um, who haven't seen women in their networks and as viable uh, folks. Again, I think there's a parallel to the business world here, right? Who do you tap to right. be the next leader? Um, so that's been a real barrier. And getting parties to see that benefit, that that so, asset that women bring to, to the table. So just to draw the correlation a little further, the business yeah. world, we've been talking over the past couple of weeks, especially on last week's show, about the importance of mentorship and sponsorship. Sure. We talk a lot about networks. So actually the parties are the networks. And That's if, right. And so what you're saying then is that if women are not engaged in party activities and they're not building their networks there, how are they going to find the mentorship and sponsorship to then be advanced by the party? Yeah. So so in that survey I mentioned, one of the other things we, we found was that encouragement matters more for women in making the decision to run. And you hear this sometimes when people say, oh, women need to be asked to run. That is true. Um, but we want to sort of add to that. There's more nuance to it. Um, it's not that women are just sitting around and they don't think about it, right? <laughs> like they need a date for the prom. Yeah, exactly. They're smart, right? So they want to know that if they make that decision to run, they have the backing of the people that they need, which is parties, right? Mm-hmm. So encouragement matters. And in that survey, we found that encouragement from political leaders, including party leaders and other sort of politicians, matters the most. In other words, it's most influential in getting them to say, yes, I will put my, you know, throw my hat in the ring and and make a bid for office. So it does that recruitment of parties really matters. And you see... You know, the differences, quite frankly, between the two parties right now, um, the Republican Party is, has been struggling with increasing the numbers of women in office. And the more we do research on that, one of the big problems is there hasn't really been a targeted effort to recruit and support women. On the Democratic side, there hasn't been an intensive effort, but there have been women in those positions, those sort of recruitment positions at organizations like the DCCC or, you know, political party uh, formal organizations that do that recruitment. So, yeah, there is a real it's important to women and there is um, barriers still to to getting women uh, to be sort of tapped and encouraged by by the folks who still hold that power. So as you're describing this, one of the things you're not describing is party platform as a factor. In the popular media, um, it, you you would tend to think there'd be gender signs on each party and that the Democratic Party is serving the needs of women more overtly. Um, is, is party platform a factor? Is it bias? Is it um, the leaky pipeline that's preventing more Republican women from emerging? Because there are plenty of Republican women in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... So surely women are more likely to identify with the Democratic Party overall, right? Um, So there is a sort of numerical bias, I guess, if you would say, in the pool of potential women candidates, that there just tend to be more uh, women who are Democrats um, in the population. But you make an important point. There's, that does not mean that there aren't plenty of Republican women who are both qualified to serve, probably interested in serving, um, and, and have the potential to be a fabulous candidate and office holder. So there are a couple of problems. Um, I, I do think that it is that initial sort of recruitment and support um, that is, is somewhat different between the parties. Um, there's also a financial infrastructure lacking for Republican women that is available for Democratic women, and I think that that's accounted for a lot of the difference, at least at the federal and state executive level in recent years. So you look at an organization like Emily's List, right, which is a Democratic uh, uh, pack to support women candidates exclusively. Um, and for the last 20 plus years, Emily's List has been really feeding um, support to and in really significant amounts of money to Democratic women candidates and, and has been large, incredibly successful and has become a sort of party adjunct. The party looks to Emily's List to see their, who they're going to support and then they back them as well um, because of the financial asset that they bring. And that is just not true on the Republican side. There have been attempts and there are currently some women's PACs on the Republican side, but they just have not been able to achieve nearly the same level of support and success um, as they have on the Democratic side. So I think that infrastructure and also the incentive of the party itself 
to sort of prioritize gender diversity is are two really big distinctions between between the parties. Clearly. Um, the person who's sharing all of this really insightful information and perspective with us is Kelly Dittmar. Um, she is a scholar at the nonpartisan and nonprofit Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. If you have questions for Kelly or you'd just like to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 Six, six. So, Kelly, one of the things I um, downloaded your book, by the way, Navigating Gendered Terrain, oh, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Cam- Campaigns, and don't have nearly enough time to dive into every detail. But one of the things that it was starting to help me see in a way I never had before was that um, the machinery of the campaign itself, the people who are in it, have almost as much impact on whether or not a woman candidate is going to make it into office as that woman does on her own. Yeah. How present are women behind the scenes in the campaigns in both parties? Well, first, thank you for downloading my book, but also <laughs> thank you for raising this this point, because I do think it's really essential. And actually talking to an audience like yours, talk about sort of opportunities to get engaged in politics this is one way that I think is often overlooked. So women are um, incredibly underrepresented, um, not only in office, um, uh, but also among those political professionals. And here I'm talking pr- particularly the numbers that I sort of know and have are among political consultants, so people who do this as their full-time job. Um, when I was doing my research, which is now uh, about five, six years old, so the numbers have surely changed since then, but not drastically, um, women were sort of less than 30% of strategic political consultants. Um, So you had men really dominating the conversations about how do you run a campaign, what messages do you put out there, how do you put them out there. And I think that's a really important point to make when you're talking about how gendered campaigns are. Mm -hmm. Um, If the people at the table who are sort of constructing all of the images and messages are dominated by men, then you're going to sort of continue, I think, what has been the dominance of masculinity in campaigns, even when women are running. Because you have somebody like a Mark Penn who says, everybody expects the president to meet these masculine credentials, Hillary, so you just have to be more manly. (laughs) Um, And that will be successful. And I think that's short-sighted. And I think that women um, who do this work bring with them a distinct perspective um, from experiencing life as a woman that might help to sort of expand the image and the imagination of, of what it looks like and what it means to be a candidate. How do women get into these roles? What are the paths yeah. if women want to get behind the scenes and start to um, help candidates get elected and shape the way campaigns unfold and discuss the issues? I think, you know, a lot of people get involved directly by just, you know, starting on campaigns at any level, you know, starting to volunteer or participate on a sort of at the lowest levels of political campaigns from as early on as a point as they become interested um, and then sort of making connections. It's a world that is very much about networks and connections and experience in in doing this work. That's one way. Um, Other ways, particularly for women, are to reach out to organizations like ours, the Center for American Women in Politics or EMILY's List, groups that um, support women candidates, and see if they can help you sort of get involved. So we do, for example, a campaign training every year um, in March. It's called Ready to Run. That is open not just to women who are looking to run for office, but women and men who might want to work on a campaign, uh, particularly for a woman candidate, is sort of ours is focused. But other training programs also do a great job of trying to train staff as well as um, as well as candidates. So there are those sorts of programs out there that folks can find more information about and and figure out if that's the way they prefer to do their public service to get involved in politics. What do you think this means for women in business? Do you think that the slow movement, but the movement, is going to make have an impact beyond the public sector? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sort of two-way street. I think the the empowerment and sort of advancement of women in business helps women in politics and, and a number of ways. Um, just two among them are it creates another pool of candidates. Um, mm-hmm. So there are women who, you know, 
the the more success that women have in business, we hope that they see themselves then as potential candidates, right? You have the skills, you have the experience, you have the resume. You look at somebody like a Gina Raimondo, um, who is now governor of Rhode Island, who had a, huber, uh, a hugely successful business um, resume, who used that to leverage and, and demonstrate her experience for office. Um, other women have done the same. I also think that um, in business, the more success women have, that also positions them as funders. Again, in a campaign world that is very much dependent on money, um, it's important that women increase their presence among political donors to influence who gets in office and, and maybe even support some women. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think that's one way. And then I think on the flip side, women in politics um, have been known to focus on issues and, and really prioritize some issues that do matter specifically to women. And that includes women in business. It includes things like fighting for equal pay, um, supporting policies and programs that support women business owners. Um, and you've seen women in Congress and women at the local and state level really champion some of those those issues. So I think it's mutually beneficial, and, and I think the advancement in one area helps in the other. Absolutely. It's perfectly clear. Um, and um, I also love that you're pointing out there, just like we talk about, there are different ways to join, stay, succeed, and lead, that there are different ways to join in um, the campaign process. And that um, you can do it through philanthropy, you can do it through volunteer service, and you can do it as a professional endeavor. That's right. So I want to come back because I am now wildly intrigued by Ready to Run um, okay. and this training program. So give me some details about it. When does it run? How long does it last? What are you doing? You're there. How much does it cost? Sure, sure. Um, so Ready to Run is, is, is again, our nonpartisan uh, campaign training program, and it's actually part of a national network. So we have a program here in New Jersey, and then we have programs in over 15 states throughout the country um, that also run a same or very similar program under the umbrella of Ready to Run. Um, it is a one- to two-day program, depending on where you are and also which part of the program you choose to participate in. Um, but it includes a number of things, like... Um, it also includes multiple tracks, for example. So I'm ready to run now or I'm thinking about it, basically. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I multiple like that. tracks. Um, and then included in that, we bring in professionals, political consultants and professionals who can talk about building a campaign plan, fundraising, uh, social media. We have a media messaging portion of the program um, from Chris Yonke, who's a, a masterful uh, media coach who comes in and talks about how to do TV and how to do radio and things like that. Um, we also have the women speak directly to women who've done it. And I think some of that is some of the most important pieces of Ready to Run because what they hear is sort of what challenges did you face, how did you approach them, and it becomes a real safe space particularly for women to say, and these are the things that might be distinct to women, um, the challenges that we face. So probably much of the work that you do on the show, um, but we have that conversation around politics among elected women, appointed women who come and speak to them. And then I'd say the last piece that I think is really important and incredibly valuable is that years ago we started um, a number of diversity initiatives as part of Ready to Run. So on the first day, in the morning of the first day, we have breakout sessions specifically for women of color, for Latina women, uh, uh, black women, and, and Asian American women. And again, the idea there is to say our experience is going to be somewhat distinct. Um, we have different challenges, different opportunities. And so how do we um, take advantage of those things and also combat the hurdles that we might face? And so we have women who come and speak explicitly to that and create a space to really field questions and help women network so that beyond the two days, they then have um, a network of support, supportive women around them and even experts that they can reach out to to really both make the decision to run and start to successfully build their campaign. So you're giving them both tactics and strategies, yep. role models, and yep. an effective network and ways to look squarely through the diversity and inclusion lens. Yes, that's what we are, all those things. And, and I, and, <laughs> After you know, our own hearts. <laughs> and I have to say, so Dean Sinstack, who is the sort of director of Ready to Run here at the Center for American Women in Politics, really has just done a fabulous job at making sure that it does hit all those points. And it's become a real sort of everybody, you know, the women in politics in New Jersey know about Ready to Run, um, and that's true in other states as well. 
Um, and it's become a place where people come back multiple years, even if they've already sort of been trained for that networking and for that sort of catching up with women and, again, seeing where everybody's at and supporting them. So we're really proud of, of that work and proud to have women who've done it and run for office and been successful. Um, do people need to apply to be accepted or can anybody go? Yeah. So uh, you don't need to apply to be accepted, but it, the, there is a cost of the program. I, you know, the the... We have scholarships as well, so even if folks can't afford it, but uh, people just send in, sort of, you know, sign up for the program starting in, I believe, February, and the program is in March of every year, um, and that gives folks time to file uh, after <laughs> they've, they've come. Uh, and so do I you talk so, through some of those uh, details, the mechanics of actually getting your campaign launched? Oh, definitely, yeah. So and how to get on the ballot? Yeah, we've been really fortunate to have, um, so Mike Duhane, who's a political strategist, uh, was for, for Governor Christie um, and political consultant um, in the area and for uh, the Republican National Convention. You know, he comes and does it for, does a campaign session for us that is literally nuts and bolts. You know, here are the forms you need to fill out. Here's the timeline you need to use. Um, here's all the different campaign roles you should consider, you know, depending on what level you're running for. Um, and then in New Jersey, and I think this is also true in other states, um, in addition to those nuts and bolts, we have people coming in and saying, and here's how you navigate the party structure, which can be really wow. complicated. So it is really the hope is that they leave with at least an initial batch of all that knowledge. They get a, a USB with all the information <laughs> on it and that they can, you know, obviously it's too much to take in in two days. They often can, but they know that they can come back and, and get some clarification or additional information if it if it might have escaped them after those two days. But hopefully they have it um, on paper and they then now have the contact information for those experts who are in the room. What's the age range and what's the minimum age to be involved? You know, I I don't know that we have a minimum range. I don't know that, or minimum age. I don't know that we've ever had that sort of as an issue. Um, so I'm not, I don't believe we have any minimum, minimum age. We do often try to, you know, target women who are thinking about running for office. So that could be really any age, um, but obviously it does target a little bit older. We often do have college students who come. That's probably the youngest I've seen um, and participate. And they often have come out of our program, which uh, we have another program for college women called New Leadership, um, and it's a leadership development program for college women. So we often grab those women and encourage them to come to Ready to Run within a year or two of, of the time that they were um, in our leadership program. If people so, want to find out information on either program, where can yeah. they look? They can go to cawp.ruckers.edu. So it's just cop.ruckers.edu, and that's our main page. And we have a tab on there that says education and training. So it's pretty easy to get to. Well, Kelly, I can't thank you enough for the education you've given us today, for the extraordinary work that you're doing um, at the Center for American Women in Politics. And thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So in addition to thanking Kelly Dittmar for that really um, insightful examination of what the conditions are and the many reasons why you women out there should go Sign up for Ready to Run and get yourselves on the ballot. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Kylie from our first half hour and encourage you to go check out um, Raising Ms. President. Um, I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. So we really were all women at work on Women at Work today. You can check out our schedule of replays on the SiriusXM website. That's SiriusXM.com backslash business radio. Thanks so much for listening to us here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. With one another. Find out their problems and iron out their quarrels and try to live as brothers. And try to find peace within without stepping on one another. And do respect of the women of the world. Just remember we all had mothers. Make this land a better land in the world. Help each man be a better man